Welcome to episode 331 of the AMPM podcast. This week I'm speaking with Paul Miller. Paul is a very successful Amazon seller and he has a unique approach. And instead of just doing simple private label or wholesale, he specializes in licensing. That's right, creating a moat around your product using licensing. And that's what we're going to be talking about in today's episode. And oh yeah, one more thing. Helium 10 Elite is open for new members right now. You know, we normally keep this closed and only open it a couple times a year. And right now it's actually open. If you go to h10.me forward slash elite three, h10.me forward slash elite three, you can check out all the details. But basically Helium 10 Elite is the most advanced plan from Helium 10. It includes monthly training from myself and other high-level experts. It includes monthly roundtables with myself, plus other uh, weekly roundtables with the staff of Helium 10. You get a lot more access to some of the tools on Helium 10. You get upgraded access. You can send more things. You can do more things. You get some special software that's not available in the general Helium 10 software suite, plus a whole lot more. So make sure you go and check out Helium 10 Elite at h10.me. Elite 3, h10.me forward slash Elite 3. Get all the details and hopefully sign up if you're not already a member because it will be closing soon. Welcome to the AMPM Podcast. Welcome to the AMPM Podcast. We explore opportunities in e-commerce. We dream big and we discover what's working right now. Plus, plus, this is the podcast where money never sleeps. Working around the clock in the AM and the PM. Are you ready for today's episode? I said, I said are, are you, you ready? Ready. Let's do this. Let's do this. Here's your host, Here's your host Kevin, King. Kevin King. Paul Miller, welcome to the AMPM podcast. It's a delight to have you here. Thank you, Kevin. Great to see you again. Yeah, I feel like I should be getting, a, you know, every time I pass Chuck E. Cheese, I think of you. <laughs> You know, there's a Chuck E. Cheese up by a store that I go to here, a liquor store, actually, right next to a Specs liquor store uh, in, in the Austin area. And every time I pass by there, I see that Chuck E. Cheese on the corner. And I'm like, I think of I think of Paul Miller, because back in the day before this whole Amazon thing, you owned a bunch of Chuck E. Cheeses, didn't you? Well, you're you're really close. Uh, it was actually CC's Pizza. Oh, CC's Pizza. Okay, <laughs> then I, then I need to quit paying attention to that Chuck E. Cheese. All right, CC's Pizza. That's the one. That's like the the two dollar ninety nine cent all you can eat buffet. It was two ninety nine <laughs> back in the day when I opened up mine. Uh, they were three ninety nine, um, and yeah, I own three of them in three different states and. I'm glad to say I'm not in that business anymore. <laughs> that yeah, that's that's got to be a that's got to be a tough business. I mean, I look at these fast food places, you know, everything from the subways to the, I guess the, the CC's pizzas and whatever it may be, and with a few exceptions, you know, like a Chick Fil A or a couple of those. These guys, I'm looking at their numbers, you know, they're they're charging six, seven, eight bucks for a sandwich, and they might be doing a thousand dollars a day, fifteen hundred dollars a day, and top line revenue. I'm like, okay, this place is doing, these guys spent several hundred thousand dollars to actually buy a license uh, to get into this. Plus, uh, they're paying royalty on all their sales. And here they are scratching for a living. And I'm like, how does anybody that owns any of these franchises actually make money? I think the answer to that is either you go with a Chick-fil-A or one of those top performing ones, 
or you put together 20 or 30 of these things, you know, and you, in, in a market and you just take a little bit of scraps off of each one and then you can actually make a living. Is that kind of what you were trying to do with three? Well, um, you know, we could do a whole podcast about franchising <laughs> and what I think about it. Um, I think there are some very, very successful franchise models out there. And yes, I think that running multi units is probably the key to serious success. But I can tell you from my point of view of having done being a multi unit operator uh, with a franchise and being an Amazon seller, I like being an Amazon seller much more. But I did learn something very, very important in my uh, pizza business. And that is a kind of a model for manufacturing. You know, when you have to develop kind of product forecasting models for how much you're going to sell in the next week, mm-hmm. that's really training for how, you know, how you're going to build up your, your Amazon pipeline of product and your logistics all the way to when you're going to deliver it to the customer. So if on a day-to-day basis, we had to start with raw ingredients, figure out how many dough balls to make, and, and then, you know, put the right toppings on them and deliver them to the customer just in time. So when you exited that business and got out of the pizza business, was there a little bit of a gap there before you started doing Amazon? Were you messing around with some other stuff or did you go straight into to Amazon? It was pretty much straight in. I actually started my Amazon journey while I was still uh, running the last of my restaurants. And I actually got my start by listening to a podcast with Ryan Moran. I was in that course in 2015. I think that might have been where we met. Did we meet at one of the capitalism.com conferences? I think the first time we met was in or uh, probably in Florida. Okay. Yeah. Because I remember Ryan used to do those uh, capitalism. He still does them, but he's changed yep. the format. It used to be these big, you know, seven, 800,000 people conferences. And I remember he brought in like Gary Vanderchuk and back before Gary was, was a thing and That's several right. other people. And it was really, really good. Uh, he did like four of them here in Austin. And then I think one in Dallas. And then after that Dallas one, he, he changed the model and, uh, and kind of cut them back to more of a, like an exclusive, uh, much smaller events. But, uh, so you started, when you came into, uh, selling on Amazon, did you do the traditional private label method or did you actually have a product in mind? Like I have this idea, um, that I'm going to create from scratch. I did not have a product idea when I started. I fiddled around with a couple of um, products in the beginning. One of them, uh, to me famously, are, were these little paper popcorn bags. <laughs> uh, it was just, a, and this was more of a reseller thing to just try to see how it worked. And uh, as I was going through the course and asking my wife, you know, what can we sell on Amazon? Uh, she mentioned uh, as the... Um, let's see what's it called the pto yeah it's one of the pto treasure she was constantly buying these popcorn bags uh for movie night at the school and you know she'd have to buy a thousand at a time and it was too many uh so i looked at the uh listings on amazon and i said wow there's definitely an opportunity to to sell a different quantity more manageable quantity 100 at a time so i bought a box from my restaurant supplier (laughs) yeah a thousand popcorn bags for twelve dollars, and we broke them down into uh, units of one hundred each, and sold them uh, sold them for about twelve dollars each at a hundred hundred packs. So we had a nice margin there, and it just kind of got you know. I took some good pictures. I learned all the kind of the elements of building a listing, and it that was successful right away. So um, that was just kind of a fun 
product that I was playing with while I was looking for my private label product. At its peak, what are those? What were those doing like a month? Just those popcorn bags. Well, I was actually- doing uh, ten or twelve a day, you know. But I was making four or five dollars off of each one, so I was pretty happy about that. Just that's, for playing around. It's more money than you make off a buffet. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, um, yeah i I don't want to get I don't want to take up too much of your time about the buffet business, but that's a challenge for sure. <laughs> um, so, so you started with the popcorn bags, and then did you evolve into a few other products uh, along the way? Because I know eventually you got into uh, something called cozy phones, uh, which right. is uh, uh, we'll talk about that here in a second. Uh, but. Yeah. Were there a few others along the way before the, the big uh, home run? The first product that I decided to really source from China and uh, was a product that I had used in the past, uh, headband headphones. And uh, it's something that I still use to this day, uh, sleep headphones for adults. And I found a brand of those, uh, basically a private label brand. And um, I started selling those. Uh, there wasn't much competition at that time. Uh, started selling them as the label that they were branded with coming from China. But then as soon as I saw some initial success, uh, we rebranded them uh, with a private, with my private label, Cozy Phones, and uh, really just dominated that space for a long time in the adult headband headphone space. Uh, and then, as you know, I came up with the idea of making these for kids. And so we kind of pivoted a little bit. I kept the adult business. But we made some new designs focused on kids, you know, fun kids characters. Like, a, for example, I think the first one we did was a frog, a kitten, and so forth. So the and, headphone, wait, so for the people listening, uh, so you start with adult headphones, just kind of some sort of traditional headphones people would put on while they're sleeping, just to like they would play with, with some music built into it, or yeah, they would have to stream no, it? No, it's, it's basically a, it's a he, uh, like about a two-inch wide headband which got a channel in the middle of it, a headband. Mm-hmm. And then there's some small, thin speakers, thin cushion speakers that go inside the headband and they're, they're held against the head. So you don't have anything sticking in your ear when you're trying to sleep on your side or your back or whatever. So And those just plugged into, at that time, it was just a regular old 3.5 millimeter stereo jack into your, your device or your phone. Okay, so they weren't even Bluetooth or anything. They were just they just had a cable sticking out. No, they're uh, Bluetooth now, but not not at that time. So then those were doing well, and you said, "Hey, I see an opportunity here. Why don't I, I make these for kids?" And so you came out with some designs, and you said, "Like a frog." So what did you do? You took the headband and like put frog designs on it, or did you put like a, you know make it like a three dimensional frog I on there? It, or? Like the like the front of the headband would be the face of the frog, for example. Okay, uh, and we did the similar thing with a unicorn. So, the you know there was a unicorn face design on the headband itself, and uh, that was you know this is just kind of a an idea I had. Maybe this would be fun for kids, and I didn't really realize um, the total benefits it would have for kids. So there are a lot of kids who don't, especially younger kids, three to six years old who don't like regular headphones, absolutely can't tolerate um, earbuds. And, but these, these headphones are fun and comfortable. Um, they, they feel cozy, like cozy phones. And they just solve a lot of problems. When kids are traveling, you know, you fall, say they're uh, on an airplane or in a car traveling, they can fall asleep with them on without them, you know, 
interfering with the headrest or something like that. So you did you did them with frogs and the unicorn and maybe some other designs, but then that evolved into doing something with licensing, which is we're, we're going to talk about uh, here in just a second. Walk me through that process, how it went from frogs to unicorns to uh, I need to go beyond just frogs and yeah, unicorns. Right. Well, so once I launched these uh, and I found out that they were really working well, especially in the area of special needs, uh, kids with autism and sensory disorders, I was uh, offering these up into different Facebook groups and so forth. I, and they were on fire. I mean, everybody just loved them. And I was like, oh, boy, this is a real success. And I was, but I was terrified. I'm going to get ripped off. I know I'm going to get ripped off pretty soon on this. As a matter of fact, a coach, and I'm not going to mention, a coach used my cozy phones as an example in his course. Oh, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was not good. And, you know, so what, of course, well, after that was used as an example in a course, did all of a sudden, a few months later, there's tons well, of them coming out? I got out? copied like crazy. Yeah. It just, I, that's a, a whole nother story about how we got copied and ripped off and then how I eventually, you know, took down probably a hundred different competing ASINs and collected some money from those guys. People started doing their own frog designs and unicorns or they were doing other things and just marketing them in the same way. Let me answer your question about licensing, I guess, and then oh. I'll tell you about how All we right. took down. So I was terrified that I was going to get copied, and this is early on in probably 2016, 2017. And um, as you remember, uh, I was doing the Private Label podcast with Kevin Reiser. And through that podcast, we made lots of great connections. And one of the guys that we connected with... What do you mean you were doing the podcast with him? Oh, I was producing it for him. Okay. Yeah, for those of you that are new to this space, Kevin Reiser is one of the original podcasters in the space. He's based in uh, Dallas back in, I guess, 2015 or thereabouts. He was one of the very first ones that uh, a lot of people cut their teeth on listening to his podcast. And there was Scott Volker and a few others. Right. It was basically Scott Volker and us. And I had a media background. Kevin and I were part of the same kind of mastermind. I said, hey, I'm happy to help you on this. And so I was kind of in the background, booking the clients, uh, producing the, the uh, audio for him. And uh, we, had a, we had a great run. So you, through that, you made a connection with somebody. And go right. ahead and continue there. Talk about, okay, great. we're going way back in the old days. So one of the guys we had on was Mark Hirsch, who was with Q Brands at the time. And Q Brands, a lot of people think that Thrasio and others were the original aggregators, but Q Brands is the first one that I remember. They bought and Ryan's they company, his, his yoga mat company, right? That's right. They bought Ryan's yeah, company. Yeah, they were out of Chicago, I think. Um, right. Like they were the early adapter, or earlier uh, aggregator. Yeah. And that's 2016, 2017, so it's very early on. And so I we had Mark Hirsch on the podcast at that time, one of the partners, and so uh, we had hit it off and connected. I called him and said, Mark, look, I've got this product that's on fire. I'm looking to grow and protect it. You know, what are your thoughts? And he, he said, look, my brother's been in the entertainment business for a long time. I think licensing would be a, a good way to go. And I had no idea what he was even talking about. I said, what do you mean? Uh, and so he explained the concept to me. Uh, he said, if I were you, I'd go out to the licensing show in Las Vegas and check it out. So that was probably 
April, I think, and I booked my tickets for May. I went to the licensing show, learned the basics of licensing, and uh, secured my first license in in May. So for those of you that don't know, licensing uh, is when you actually get permission from someone else to use their, their IP. So it could be, you know, a lot of times, you know, you see Disney, for example, they have all these lines of backpacks and pencils and, and whatever, it may, you know, the whole line of stuff. They're not producing hardly any of that. Uh, they're, they're licensing that out to companies that specialize in producing backpacks or pens. Those companies take care of the actual manufacturing of the, of the product, of the design. The, they have to send those designs over to Disney to get Disney to sign off on them, say this is okay, the, the font that you're using is you know, the right font that, we, that can be used in our products, the colors are right, and so on. There's a process there. Then that, that company goes out and sells them into the marketplace, and then they get a royalty in exchange for that. And that royalty can be anywhere from 4% to as high as 15 20% in, so, in some cases, probably around 7 to 10% uh, more of a, a, a general average. And that company that's making them then pays that royalty. And there's a whole business around this uh, that, that's huge. And, and that's where a lot of people make you know, their money. I mean, companies like Playboy, for example. You know, Playboy, most of you know who that is. They, they used to be the magazine and, and the TV channel and stuff. Now most of that's gone. And they actually, but they still exist. And they make most of their money off of licensing because they became a lifestyle brand. So by people putting their logo on shirts and different things, uh, you know, on lighters and what have you, that they're still actually making money off of that. So that's how licensing works. And there's a big show in Las Vegas called the Licensing Expo that happens every May or so. And I actually went to the show. Paul and I, Paul invited me out a few years ago to the show to, after he kind of learned the ropes. He said, hey, why don't you come out and, and join me and uh, show me around. And this is huge. This one was at the Mandalay Bay, and it was like the entire conference center was filled up, much more than a prosper. Like the entire place was filled. And there's everybody in there from the U.S. Army to game manu- gaming companies to all kinds of, I mean, to the biggest brands in the world, uh, movie studios and everything were there. And you could go and you could meet with the different people and, and perhaps uh, make a deal to actually use your product to actually license their IP and make it. And one of the, adva- you know, one of the advantages on Amazon, you know, a lot of people know that the, the, the private label model, which is what Paul started, started with, uh, as he said, but licensing gives you kind of a moat around everything. That's right. And, and licensing, if you're selling a, a, a tactical flashlight, for example, and you're, and you're going up on Amazon against a thousand other people selling tactical flashlights, and you come up, you private label it, and you have a great flashlight, and you come up with a cool brand name, it can still be very difficult to compete and to get any leverage. But if you go and you say, instead of creating Kevin's tactical flashlight, I'm going to go to the U.S. Army, and I'm going to license the U.S. Army's name and their, their trademarks and their logos and everything, I'm going to come out with a tactical flashlight that's a U.S. Army tactical flashlight. Immediately, you have instant credibility, and you can cut through a lot of the clutter, and people will immediately trust it. Uh, and, you, and that's one of the advantages of licensing. Uh, and then these license or the licensee ors protect their IP. So if someone is copying it or, or doing something they shouldn't, they'll spend their money in a lot of cases to actually go after them and shut them down. So you're not having to chase them. Uh, so that's what Paul uh, did here is actually learned about licensing, and then you went out and got a license for your Cozy phones. And who did you actually get your first license with? Our very first license uh, was with a very, um, not very small, but a small um, uh, author of a, uh, a book called The What If Monster. 
that was my entry. So you don't have to spend thousands to get your license. She had uh, tens of thousands of followers for her book concept, which was called What If Monster. But that kind of, um, you know, cut my teeth on licensing and uh, was able to demonstrate some knowledge and success in licensing before we got our first major license was with uh, Nickelodeon and Paw Patrol. Now, it can be difficult to get a license. A lot of people listening to this, oh, this would be cool. I'm just going to go get a license with Disney. But to go after the top tier licenses is not, they're pretty picky on who they take. So usually, and like expensive. you just said, you start small. <laughs> you start with the what if monster and prove a track record of payments and you know knowing what you're doing and knowing the lingo. And then you can work your way up the chain. And is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's that's a great assessment, Kevin. And, um, you know, you, you made a couple of really good points about the benefits of licensing. And I was hoping you were going to make them or I was going to repeat them. Uh, because you do, by being associated with those major licenses, you know, you look at Cozy, or if you were looking for headband headphones on Amazon, and you saw that I offer the Nickelodeon version and all that, you're going to obvious, you're going to automatically attribute some kind of quality and success to my brand because I'm associated with Nickelodeon versus, you know, some other kind of knockoff brand. Uh, and as you mentioned, also, they will help you protect your brand and it becomes a um, barrier to, uh, say, a foreign seller who doesn't want to mess around with a Nickelodeon. They know they're not going to, you might get knocked off by somebody else on your originals or your, your own designs, but they do know better than in most cases, they know better than to try to copy, uh, you know, a Disney or a Nickelodeon. And if, if you're interested in the licensing, if you go out to the, uh, just look up the licensing expo, they have a book that you can buy uh, and then some online courses. And then at the event, they actually do some training and stuff as well. But it can be a great way to differentiate your product and to get a leg up. And there's actually a whole industry of people that, of agencies and stuff that handle the licenses for big brands. So you're not, you might not be dealing with Disney. For example, like Marquee Brands is, is one of the big ones out of New York. And they handle like Martha Stewart's and Emerald Legacy and uh, several others. Um, and they handle all that processing for those other brands. So sometimes there's a, a middleman, like an agent or something in the middle that, that right. handles it. And it, it's a huge, huge industry. Uh, and it's it's a huge, huge business. And a lot of people just, it's there's no courses um, other than I think you have something that you've done on teaching people on licensing really out there. So people always think it's uh, either wholesale or FBA and they, they forget this licensing opportunity. Now, one of the things on licensing, though, that's important to mention is if you're going to go after a, a mid-level or higher uh, licensee, and maybe you can say what Nickelodeon required, but a lot of times you have to put in advance. That's right. So you'll come up with a, a line of a products and you'll say, this is what we think these products are going to sell over the next three years. And they'll let you ramp that up over time uh, you know, as you're launching. And you're basically committing to either you are going to sell that or you're going to pay them as if you sold that. And then they will require advances against royalties. So a lot of them require like a quarterly royalty reports. And some of them have some pretty sophisticated software where you go in, you log everything, and they will calculate a royalty. And in some cases, they may say, we want you to pay $30,000 up front. And then as your sales go up, you know, next quarter, you're going to have to pay 50000 up front. And then any sales that come in against that will credit it against that payment. And if, if you don't meet that payment, you still owe that minimum guarantee. And if you go over that payment, you pay them the difference. So it can be tricky uh, in there as well. So you really need to know 
what you're doing and you need to have a system in place uh, or you can get burned uh, on licensing as well and be paying for a lot of stuff that you actually never sold. What's your experience there with? No, you you hit the main points on that. And I was hoping you were going to say minimum guarantee because that's uh, very, very important. And, and that is, you know, we teach in my course, I teach the kind of elements of the license and the things that you should be aware of when you're negotiating license. So, and I can tell you right now that I've done, uh, I'm not going to name the licenses that I that that I ended up losing money on, but I have lost money on some of my licenses. And you're, you know, not to be taken lightly, you're creating a contract uh, with the licensor that you're going to pay them a minimum amount over the life of the contract, whether or not you make or sell any product, you still got to pay the rent. And that's what you're doing. You're renting that IP. And so uh, the minimum guarantee is usually an amount, uh, say, uh, of, like you said, estimated royalty over the two or three year contract. And then the advance is the portion of that minimum guarantee that you have to pay upfront when you execute that contract. And that's locking you in as basically a manufacturer because the, the, um, the IP holder or the licensor, they don't want to uh, give up this property or give up that license without making sure that you're actually going to make some product and, and and pay the licensing fees. Yeah, I mean, I've had my own experience with with licensing as well. We we for one of our we did some dog life jackets for one of our our brands and we actually licensed it with a, a big surfing company. And that that surfing company um, made us a lot of promises that said, "Hey, we're going to support you. We're going to get you into Walmart." You know, they sell $20 million worth of life jackets a year. We're going to get you make the introductions into Dick's Sporting Goods. And and we have all these influencers. We have these athletes that have a million-plus uh, followers on their social media. We'll get them to take pictures with the product and send that out there. And we're like, man, this is a – we don't even need to do a launch. I mean, we can just use – leverage their whole whole system and just – crush this thing. Uh, you know, we, we got to have some minimum guarantees. We'll produce a really good product. We'll, we'll take care of the Amazon side of things because they had someone doing Amazon before and it just wasn't working. And so they, they came and said, hey, you guys look like you know what you're doing. And that's what we, we did. Uh, but at the end of the day, they didn't live up to their side of the bargain. Uh, they actually did not do, uh, you know, their influencers with a million, that, that person never did anything. And then they ended up going out to one of these like FameBit websites and actually just looking for some influencers. And they, they did get us a mention in like, a, I think Martha, Martha Stewart's online uh, web blog or something like that. And we got like three sales off of it. You know, it's oh one boy. of these nothings. So it turned into to nothing. And we're like, look, we're not, we're not gonna continue this. It, this just, is, it's, it's not working. Uh, so we actually, and, and they came back to us and they said, hey, you know, you have a three year obligation here. You gotta, you know, we've already booked this revenue on the books. You gotta pay us. And we're like, we're not going to pay you. Come after it. We'll bankrupt the company because uh, we set this up as a whole separate company if, if we need to. And so at the end of the day, we negotiated where we just turned over the inventory uh, that we had to them. And, and then they ended up putting that on their website, you know, and counting that against some of the royalties. And uh, we just kind of parted ways. And so that, that's a tricky, a tricky thing uh, in it because one of the things that I always say is if you're going to get into to licensing, you want to be able to leverage the name of that brand. So if you're an Amazon seller and you're thinking about, hey, this is a pretty cool idea, and it can be a great idea, it can be really good, go out and 
go on Amazon and see if people are searching for that brand name as a keyword. And, it, and my rule, and this is just, I just made this rule up. It's just, you could have a different number here, but if there's not at least 3,000 searches per month on that specific brand name by itself on Amazon, that's not a brand. And that's not someone you want to actually um, probably do a license for if you're an Amazon seller. Yeah, that's a great, uh, great point, Kevin. You know, and so obviously licensing can be a two-edged sword. <laughs> and there are those kind of um, clauses in a licensing contract of who's going to do what on the marketing. And I'm glad that you had that in your contract so that you could use that. On the keywords and the licensing, the search results, um, it's really interesting. And this is another opportunity for people who are going with licensing. You open up a new world of keywords. So if you think about it, especially when you're shopping for kids, kids have you know things that they like, Power Rangers, Paw Patrol, whatever. And when you go to gift for those kids or buy, buy something for them, you're not necessarily looking for a Paw Patrol cozy phones because you probably don't know that they exist. But you are looking for Paw Patrol gifts for boys, Paw Patrol gifts for girls. And so you, if you can leverage those keywords properly, if they have the right search volume, you can open up this whole new world of keywords that are associated with that brand or that license instead of just associated with your product. And that that also leads to a similar situation if you're, say, like you said, introductions to Walmart and these other retailers who already have confidence in that license, they already know that they sell a ton of, say, Paw Patrol toys, then they have more confidence in taking on your products if it's, say, a Paw Patrol cozy phones because they know that that license already sells. Yeah. So so you you went to Nickelodeon and uh, I'm, Paw Patrol was probably one of the ones that you, you did, right? With, with yeah, it. that was, uh, at the time, it was the third largest preschool brand in licensing. Wow. And then you did something interesting with yours. So you you did a whole line of these and you licensed and then it's it's starting going so well that I think, you know, it became a, a cash flow issue at one point where you're like, I need more inventory and I, I'm having to get more and more and this is just, uh, I'm on fire here. And you're like, what what can I do? Uh, you know, um, I, I have a, a huge success here, but I can't I can't maintain this thing. Uh, I need I need some help. So then you decided you came up with this brilliant idea was like, you know what, instead of going out and raising a whole bunch of money, you're taking on investors. You said, why don't I license this out? And why don't I actually give this to somebody else? I have this right. Let me give this to somebody else and then let me take a cut and not have to fund all this inventory and, and do all this stuff. Uh, something like that happened, right? Well, yes, uh, Kevin, I wish I could uh, claim the title of being brilliant, but <laughs> actually that, that was the idea of my licensee. And so what happened was we were selling wholesale um, to a few people. And one of the uh, folks that I was going to, uh, looking for some problem solving, as you mentioned, um, investment was I went to this guy and I said, hey, look, you know, you believe in the product, obviously. Um, you're reselling for us. Um, I'm looking for a partner who can help us scale the brand. You know, and he was doing a ton of his own manufacturing at that time. Um, and um, so I was basically going to him as an investment or a partner. 
And he said, well, how do you feel about licensing the product? We'll, we'll just license it from you instead of investing. And I had never, honestly, at that time ever considered it. But, you know, he put uh, together some deal points and it sounded pretty phenomenal to me. He would basically uh, take over the manufacturing, utilizing his scale. And they had a lot of scale for manufacturing. And then they would take care of the cash flow and the marketing, uh, even to include selling on Amazon. And they would just pay me a per unit royalty. And you could do that with a license from Nickelodeon? That you could actually have like a, you could relicense the license in effect? That was, that's a little sticky. And so we, we maintained um, our position as the manufacturer of record. Um, you could have tried to transfer that license, but then you have to, and that that's part of the licensing contracts. If there's ways to do that, but it could get really sticky. So I maintained myself, uh, my company as a manufacturer of records. So we didn't have to transfer the license, but we could still use them. And there's things called sell-off periods and all kinds of things where I could just take and resell those products to him as, as, as my distributor. And that's totally legit. So you were having to still be the one doing all the reporting and everything. We still had to do all the reporting, which can be like, as you mentioned, it can, it can be pretty time consuming and you got to do it on time. Yeah, you got to do it on time where there's penalties uh, in, yep. involved. And, and and we still had to pay the royalties, of course. But it's not just send them a, 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 a statement. Uh, you know, here's a here's a little accounting statement. It's like some of them have some pretty sophisticated software where you got to go in. You got to put like every freaking invoice and like line mm-hmm. item stuff out. It, it can be. A full-time job for somebody if, if you're daunting <laughs> yeah well you know that's again it's it's kind of you talking about building that moat right it's if it was easy everybody would probably be doing it right yeah it's not easy but it can be um, very rewarding so you think it's something that more people that are selling on Amazon as Amazon gets more crowded and the space gets it gets harder and harder to launch is that this this something that you think some people should actually consider i mean even i'm not saying go out and get a disney license necessarily you gotta have some pretty deep pockets and experience for that but like the what if you know what if there's some uh you know you find some facebook some author or something on a on a facebook site uh that's got twenty thousand thirty thousand people following or instagram or pinterest or whatever and you go to them and say hey you got all these active really engaged people let me create something uh for you Exactly. Could be, uh, you know, you know, it doesn't have to be in the kids space, right? Could be in the chef sp- space, for example, you know, or the kitchen space. Uh, one of my favorite examples that I use in my course, and I'm holding it up for you in video right now. You can see it. The audience can't. This is the Star Trek pizza cutter. You know, this 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 item was made by a company called Think Geek at one time, and yeah, Star Trek. These days is not, you know, a major license anymore, uh, but they just, that's something that's in the kitchen space. They found something that appeals to start to Trekkies and they made this Star Trek pizza cutter. Uh, so you can do, that's, you, again, you can use a license that's maybe not so well known or like you just mentioned, an author like the What If Monster. This is basically licensing is kind of like the ultimate influencer, right? You're using the license to influence the brand. I mean, George Lucas, you, on that Star Trek thing there, George Lucas with Star Wars, he, he became a billionaire not from his movies. He became a billionaire from licensing. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, 
That's where all the little dolls and toys and everything back in the 70s and 80s, that's where he made his money. Uh, and not it wasn't from, you know, the movies did well, uh, but the bulk of his cash came from uh, all of his licensing deals that he had. That's basically what the industry does now. I was at a uh, at that same Las Vegas licensing expo a couple of years ago, and I uh, was with with a big name brand name that you would recognize, and they were having a behind the scenes look at what's coming up in the next two years, and they would invite all the manufacturers into this room, and you'd have to seal up your phone in a bag. You couldn't see what's happening, or you know, it couldn't share what's happening. You had to like have a confidentiality statement even to see the stuff that they're doing the next two years and they're saying look here's all the new entertainment shows and all the stuff we have coming out in the next two years and the audience are all a bunch of manufacturers and brand owners like you and i and they said we want you guys to make stuff to match our entertainment and our content that's coming out over the next two years that's cool did you end up doing anything uh not not on that one it was a big it was a big fish and uh, I wasn't, uh, yeah, no, we didn't, but, uh, I found stuff, you know, it's fun because we then, uh, you see stuff coming out on the market. That was a result of that meeting, you know, say a year or two years ago. So what would you say is, is why should you not do licensing? If people are listening to this and they're like, this sounds pretty cool. What, what's a reason to not do it? First of all, you shouldn't do it if you don't have enough sales to support it. You know, if you, uh, it's one thing to do licensing if you're doing, you know, five or six million dollars a year and you can make the MGs. You got to be, you need to be completely confident that you can make the minimum guarantees and that if you don't make them, you can still absorb, you know, absorb that expenditure. To me, uh, it was not only about selling and making those MGs, but the opportunities, all the other opportunities that came along with licensing, like I said, protecting the brand through the IP opportunities to get into a brick and mortar retail but you really need to be comfortable that you can make those mgs that you're comfortable working with a licensor who's going to have final say over your product they have to approve those designs that you design and so it's like having a partner in your business and uh, you know you're paying them the royalties so you've got to be comfortable with all of that And, and we go into my course about you know the product development and having other people involved and how long, how much longer it takes with a license. Um, but there are quite a few factors to consider. Yeah. Like you said, the, the license still has ultimate say. And uh, like when we did our, our dog life jackets, we had an insert card uh, that was going in in with them and they didn't like the font that we used and didn't like uh, uh, one of the pictures or something. So they ended up having their design team redo the entire thing. And yeah. I'm like, no, this is, we did it a certain way. I, I can understand I'll make some changes. Uh, you know, if, if you don't like something, it will change the picture or whatever. But we did certain things for, to help it sell on Amazon. And so they mm-hmm. took, a, they uh, or to help actually get leads and stuff. And they took all that away. And they're like, no, you, you can't have the leads. Uh, you can't use our brand to generate leads. Uh, That's you know, right. So they, they took, they took some of that stuff away. So there, there are some restrictions there as well. And then you're on their brand registry on Amazon. So the, your product uh, generally is not going to show up on your storefront. So if you already are doing five or six million in sales and you already got a whole bunch of SKUs and you're going to put this up and thinking this is going to show up and give you some sort of credibility on your Amazon storefront, 
it, it's not. It's going to show up um, because it's the brand registries through them, and they'll have to. The way that works is they they'll give an approval. They send a letter into Amazon that says mm-hmm. you're you're authorized to to sell this, and so then you'll list it on your Amazon seller account, but it actually shows up on their storefront. Yeah, there's like, like I said, it's not not really for the faint of heart. You can do a a, a smaller license. You know, with easier terms for sure. But uh, you know, again, I think that's part of what builds the mode around your brand when you do hard things and the p- other people aren't willing to do. And you just think if you had that J.K. Rawlings uh, license when she came out with her first book. You know, the, I think she was like 42 years old when the first one came out. It sold like a 11 million copies. And if you had gotten in before that, she was just you know, un- she had a few books and stuff that came out, but wasn't a big author. And if you're able to ride that wave. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that would have been a, a nice one. So if you can find someone like that, that's an up and coming or something, yeah. uh, that could be a really good opportunity too. Yep. And there are, you know, there are a lot of companies and consultants that, that help people try to uncover those brands. A lot of your business experiences and I actually using other people's IP, other people's IP from franchising. Oh, that's uh, right. To, to, to licensing, uh, and selling, selling on Amazon. It's a good point because a franchise is basically the same thing as a license. It's a it's a right to use those people's uh, intellectual property, be it the name, the marketing, the recipes, the design of the store, and all that. It's basically a license. You're right. So now, what are you up to now? Since since you've licensed your license, <laughs> are you just just going out and uh, check, checking the mailbox every couple of weeks and seeing uh, how big the check is and just uh, uh, gone fishing? Or what, yeah, are you, what are you doing no, now? Not not at all. Um, I do. I kind of am a, in an advisory role uh, to Cozy Phones now, and you know my goal is to help them grow the brand even bigger and bigger. So, you know, we see more uh, royalties come flowing in, uh, and I also want to build the brand because I still own a hundred percent of equity of the brand. So I'm letting somebody else build the brand for me. And they have more, much more capability than I did. And that was another big reason why I did the license. So they're already in retail. They already have kids' products in many different channels. So as the license, as the licensee, they can bring my products in alongside their other products. So that's another good reason to license. But uh, so I'm doing some advisory work with them. Uh, as you know, I consult with one of the aggregators and helping them to find brands that w- work within their portfolio. I uh, recently launched a new brand of my own uh, in the game game category. Uh, and uh, I'm helping some other big Amazon brands out there figuring out how to navigate and improve their business on Amazon. Let's talk about that aggregator space uh, for just a second. I mean, you, you, when the, in 2020, when this, it became a hot thing, you would actually, uh, you kind of got involved there and actually started a podcast to educate people and, and to bring people up to speed. And as the, this, this aggregator market has kind of cooled off a little bit, where do you think it's going? Um, Where do you think this whole, Thing and you think that you know half of them are going to disappear and consolidate, or what? Are, what are you seeing since you you have your your foot kind of uh, or your finger on the pulse of that a little bit more than a lot of people? Yeah, boy, it's really tough. Uh, it's tough to be a prognosticator in the aggregator world now. I do think it's going to be you know I think a lot of them are really suffering now. 
they took a lot of money uh, from investors, made a lot of um, projections on how fast they could acquire and grow brands. Um, things obviously changed uh, post-COVID. Um, there are a lot of brands that did very well. And, and you know, some of the aggregators took credit for being able to grow these brands when really maybe the credit belonged to COVID. Um, and so now they're having to deal with reality. And I do think that there's going to be you know, a big consolidation and some of them will fail. So hopefully those brands will get picked up by other aggregators. Uh, but I'm, I'm expecting quite a consolidation. So does that mean that, that Prosper here in a couple of weeks, there's not going to be a quarter of a million dollar aggregator uh, dinner somewhere? Yeah, and free free Teslas, <laughs> <laughs> free Teslas, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. and I think we've seen the I think we've seen the best aggregator parties we'll probably ever see at Prosper. Yeah, it reminded me of the the 19, late nineteen nineties and the dot com era. I had a yeah. buddy that worked at a at a company, a software company that uh, ran a Super Bowl ad uh, back in I think nineteen nineteen ninety nine or two thousand maybe it was the two thousand Super Bowl. Uh, year 2000 Super Bowl, and, and they spent back then the ads weren't seven million or whatever like they are now. They were like a million and a half, two million bucks. Still, still a nice chunk of change. But at the time they ran the ad, they had seven paying customers. He told me, and and uh, within six months of running that ad, they were out of business, uh, actually, and and liquidating you know all their furniture. And we actually went over and bought some of their servers and stuff uh, yeah. for pennies on the dollar, for one of my other businesses. But I, I see this aggregator space. Kind of reminds me of that they came in hot, spending money, advertising, sponsoring everything, uh, throwing big parties, and everything now is is recoiled, and the 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 multiples are down. A lot of them aren't even buying right now. Uh, there's consolidation. Some of them are um, on life support. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. That's you're you're seeing exactly what I'm seeing, and I think yeah, it's it's definitely the other side of the bubble, right? Yeah, I know someone I just met uh, in New York at an event uh, uh, in January, and she was saying she she had a, a nice, healthy exit from an aggregator, and she had a buyout uh, on the back end of it, and and the aggregate uh, they have not paid anything, and it's one of the big ones. It's one if I said the name, you would know no almost everybody here would know the name. She hasn't received any money uh, on the, and she's like, should I, sh you know, I'm I'm here in New York, I'm going to meet with attorneys to actually see what I can do. Uh, and it's like, I, I don't know if it's even worth it, you know? So that's that's what's happening to a lot of people too that didn't get all their money up front. That's why I, always, mm -hmm. I was always saying back when it was hot, you know, back when Clubhouse, you know, everybody was on Clubhouse, the, the <laughs> app, you know, for during COVID and the aggregators would come on there and have their little sessions. And, you know, I was calling, uh, I was, you know, they're saying, no, we, we'll give you 70% uh, and, you know, 30% on buyout because we're going to, you know, our average goes up 50% or 60% or they make some sort of claim. So you're going to make more money. And I'd always tell people, I don't care how good things are right now. It, be happy with that 70%. If, if you don't get another penny, think this, I got a good deal. And just consider all that uh, uh, bonus that you weren't counting on. Otherwise, most of you won't ever see it. And that's turned out to be the case in many situations. Yeah, that's a sad situation for a lot of people who, who didn't get everything they wanted up front. And fairness most of those people got a three four five six x multiple also which they, so they were overpaid so mm -hmm. versus what people are getting now that may may sell their business it's still a great up i mean there's still businesses being sold 
you know, Quietlight and all the brokerages, they're still selling business. You go look at their page, you know, things are still selling. It, it's, but it's not so much to aggregators, it's to other folks. And now that interest rates are high, uh, you know, that cuts down on a lot of the, uh, the money that's available for people as well. That's uh, right. So it, it's, uh, I still would build a business to sell. And even if you do a licensing, I mean, you gotta, if you're going to do a licensing deal, you got to make sure that, that if you're building a company and doing a lot of licensing, that license can transfer to a new, new owner. So when you're doing that upfront uh, negotiations, you need to make sure you cover that uh, in, as a clause in, in your agreement as well. Mm-hmm. That's transferable. 100%. Well, Paul, I really appreciate uh, you coming on, man. Uh, if people want to reach out to you and learn more about licensing or uh, about your services for helping uh, sellers, what, uh, how, how would they do that? Well, I like to use LinkedIn because even if my, uh, you know, email changes, you'll always be able to get me on LinkedIn. So just look up Paul Miller Amazon and you'll find me or Paul Miller Cozy Phones on LinkedIn. You'll find me there. I love to connect with you, uh, connect with people and stay connected via LinkedIn. That's great. You can always send me a message there, too. I also monitor those. Awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing you at the next uh, event. I think last time I saw you was at a Helium 10 event. That's uh, right. And uh, I'm, I'm sure I'll see you another Helium 10 event or something else out there in the space uh, soon. Yeah, I look forward to hanging out with you again, Kevin. Thanks a lot for the opportunity to come on the podcast. I appreciate it, man. If you've got a little bit more experience selling on e-commerce on Amazon or Walmart or some of the other platforms, I think licensing is one of the big opportunities that can actually create a moat around what you're doing and give you a leg up. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's, uh, I think, a great opportunity that a lot of sellers just haven't explored, whether that's starting small with like what he said with the what if monster or going after one of the mid-level companies that are licensed in the brand and using that on your product. I think it's there's some great opportunity there. And uh, take a look at that if that's something that interests you. We'll be back again next week with another great guest. But before I go, I've got something for you, the little nugget of the week. Sell outcomes and not features. In your marketing, you should always sell outcomes, not features. For example, the iPod doesn't just play music. That's a feature. It plays music. But it's music at your fingertips. It's an artist in your hand. It's mobile enjoyment. But most famously, the tagline that they used, which is the outcome, not the feature, it's a thousand songs in your pocket. So sell outcomes, not features. Don't sell a music player. Sell a thousand songs in your pocket. Have a good week.